notice that uh, living out God's plan comes down to some very obvious things. Faithfulness, because that's what God wants most from us. These are the things we've been talking about. Truthfulness, taking truth seriously because God's wisdom is truly better than ours. Working together in our diversity, finding unity because God has made us a body of believers. Engaging others who don't know God because God wants us to engage them the way, same way that he engaged us. And finally, replicating ourselves because this is the essence of Jesus' last commandment to make disciples. Living out God's plan is is like concentric circles, starting from ourselves and moving out, making a greater and greater impact on the world from which God has begun this work deep within us. It's really an expression of who we are because of what he started inside of us. And he wants what he's done within us to make an impact on the world. And Jesus calls this making disciples. He did it by example as he gathered his own disciples selected a a few to pour into, then told those disciples to do the same thing, sent them out two by two to accomplish that, brought them back, taught them more. On his departure, commanded that we all be making disciples, reproducing ourselves in other people. Now, how this is to impact the world through what we do living this out may not be stated any more clearly than In a couple of letters, the Apostle Paul writes to two of his closest disciples, Timothy and Titus. Now, there's a little memory trick with this that is purely convenience. The Bible is the inspired word of God. The verses and the chapters are not. But it happens to be very convenient that you can remember what the Great Commission, this making disciples, is all about with twos and T's. So let me show you that. Two people in relationship with Paul. Paul with Timothy and Paul with Titus. See what I did there? Then entering into relationship with two other people, they then are sent to to pour into other people. In 2 Timothy 2.2, or as British uh, preachers say, 2 Timothy 2.2, see what I did there? See all the T's and twos? It's stated very clearly. This is the, the what And the things you have heard me say in the presence of many witnesses, that's a faithful disciple, in trust to reliable people, that's a faithful disciple making another disciple, who will also be qualified to teach others. And those are then disciple-making disciples. You see how the multiple generations go? And then in Titus chapter 2, so we got Timothy, we got Titus, we got 2 Timothy 2, 2, and we got Titus 2, we find the how, the spelling out of this last command of Jesus to make disciples. This is how we do it. I'm going to read it in a minute, but I want us to understand that this is, isn't some mechanical formula that we kind of apply robotically to circumstances. It's a very personal process that succeeds or fails dependent upon the relationship between those people. So Paul sets himself up as an example with Titus. 
This is a long-standing relationship that he's had with this man named Titus. These two have been through a lot together. We know that because at the beginning of uh, Galatians chapter 2, Paul is having to explain to uh, those that he's writing to, kind of the whole story of different things. Now, Paul began as a persecutor and a blasphemer, and so when he was miraculously saved by God on that road to Damascus, the other apostles were understandably skeptical. God actually used a significant period of time to prepare Paul before he began all that we know that he did in the New Testament probably around 15 years. He certainly says at the beginning of Galatians chapter 2, 14 years later, I went up to Jerusalem with Titus. So we see that Titus was with him way back at the beginning. Maybe he was from the same city. Maybe they just knew each other along the way, but he was with him way back at the beginning. And then we see him this Titus, show up in 2 Corinthians. Now that's very significant because Scott reminded us recently that the Corinthian church was the most problematic church we know of in the New Testament. All kinds of issues going on there. Paul had to write these letters to them. And in the first one, it's just rough. It's scathing. There's a bunch of things that have to be dealt with. When we get to the second one and we start reading in chapters 7 and 8 and chapter 12, we find that there's been somebody going back and forth working with these guys through these issues, and it's Titus. Not Paul. God used Titus as that chosen individual to be a part of the solving of the issues that were happening in this very problematic church in Corinth. And now, he's such a trusted individual, Paul can send him to this island of Crete, and we've got the letter of Titus, to this infamous island of liars, brutes, and lazy gluttons. How'd you like that assignment? And this is where we see this clear statement of how we're supposed to make disciples. So I read in Titus chapter 1 verse 5, it says, the reason I left you in Crete, so that's important, Paul had been to Crete, and then he left Titus there, was that you might put in order what was left unfinished and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. Now I begin in chapter 2. You, Titus, must teach what is appropriate to sound doctrine. Teach the older men to be temperate, worthy of respect, self-controlled, and sound in faith, in love, and endurance. Likewise, teach the older women to be reverent in the way they live, not to be slanderers or addicted to too much wine, but to teach what is good. Then they can urge the younger women to love their husbands and children, to be self-controlled and pure, to be busy at home, to be kind, and to be subject to their husbands so that no one will malign the word of God. Similarly, encourage the young men to be self-controlled in everything. Set them an example by doing what is good. In your teaching, show integrity and seriousness and soundness of speech that cannot be condemned so that those who oppose you may be ashamed because they have nothing bad to say about us. And then teach the slaves to be subject to their masters and everything, to try to please them, not talk back, not talk back to them, and not steal from them, but to show they can be fully trusted so that in every way they will make the teaching about God our Savior attractive. Now just look at the last verse, 15. These then are the things you should teach. Encourage and rebuke with all authority. 
do not let anyone despise you. Here we see this clear how we're supposed to disciple make. Verse 1, teach what is true. You must teach what is appropriate to sound doctrine. Live what you learn. Teach what is lived, not just learn. Verses 7 and 8. In everything, set an example by doing what is good and show integrity and seriousness and soundness of speech. And then lead others to do the same. That's where he's talking to the older women and says, you know, be reverent in the way you live. And then you're able to urge the other ones to do the same thing. Because God's word is at stake. Verse 5. So that no one will be able to malign the word of God. And I want you to understand this word teach, which keeps showing up in our English translation, is there for emphasis because it's important to follow through on this. But in the original language, he just keeps saying be. He says it over and over again. He says the verse, I mean that verb, and it, it carries through the context. But he says to them, be temperate, worthy of respect. Older women, be reverent in the way you live. Younger men, be self-controlled. And the urge and the slaves, he says, urge them to be subject. So here's the point. It needs to be said so that people can understand it. But mostly it needs to be lived so it is compelling and can be followed. Yeah, make sure they understand it. Oh, but most of all, set that example so that others know what and how to do it. Teach what you live. Practice what you preach. And by the time he gets to these slaves, he's addressed all of the key relationships in that society. Older men who had the authority in the culture, the older women who were shaping the role of the home, and then the younger women who would be carrying that role eventually, the younger men who are being prepared for the future, and then the slaves here, that's the rank and file. Those are us workers in the community, us employees. And so here's the effective result. This will permeate and change a society. Disciple-making is relational transformation of a society. You don't believe that can actually happen? Is that just some kind of, you know... Neat biblical principle, but that's not really going to work, is it? Consider the context. These people are infamous for being, well, chapter 1, verse 12. Paul quotes a, he doesn't accuse them, he quotes a prophet who comes from them, their own prophets. It says, one of Crete's own prophets has said, Cretans are always liars, evil brutes, and lazy Gluttons, wouldn't we like to be described as that as a church? It's, it's crazy. That, And yet, there is no question in Paul's mind that this transformation will take place. Because he says in verse 5, you finish what needs to be done. Appoint elders in every town. Not a single church. In every town town. They're going to change this whole society. 
This process is going to transform them by the power of two, one affecting another, who affects another throughout the entire land. And the standard's high. It isn't like, okay, on the island of Crete, we'll lower the, the bar a little because these guys are the lazy gluttons and they're, and they're evil and brutes. This chapter one of Titus has one of the places we find the qualifications of an elder. The standard's still the same. God's just going to do an amazing work to transform these miserable people through the power of one person living an example that affects another person who is so compelled by that example that they'll affect another who will affect another and another and another. There's nothing more powerful than this process. This command is even greater than all that caused the problems to get these people in this situation. There's nothing more powerful than a life being changed by the power of God than living out that change before others, entering into a relationship with those who are compelled by that change, giving them an example to follow, which is so compelling that they are inspired by that example to do the same thing in the life of another person. And so the process goes. It's how the world has changed. It's why 2,000 years later, we have Christians all around this world coming out of a handful of people who actually obeyed what Jesus told them to do in making disciples. For centuries, this has been happening. One teaches another who transforms the next, who influences the next, and so it goes. So teach what is true. Live what you learn. Lead others to do the same because God's reputation and his word are at stake. And Paul didn't just say it. Now listen carefully. Titus solved the Corinthian problem. Paul wrote letters, but Titus was the one going back and forth with an enthusiasm, it says in 2 Corinthians 8, with an enthusiasm to, to work with these people and to show them what it would mean to be a truly devoted follower of Jesus Christ. Titus was the best person to be among the liars, evil brutes, and lazy gluttons. Not Paul. Isn't that interesting? Paul was not the best person. Now, it's not that Paul couldn't be there, so he says, okay, I'll send second best. God had in mind Titus to accomplish this task because because making disciples is what God has commanded us to do it's what Jesus left us as the last command to do Paul was continually replicating himself and other people so that they could accomplish what God meant to do through them and this book shows how that happened directly with Titus among these Cretans these infamous people and their godless lifestyle and by God's grace and Titus faithfulness Great change came and disciples were made and churches were started. And if God can do it there, he can do it anywhere. And this is the kind of multi-generational discipleship that God has called us to be doing. So there's the truth I want you to understand today. Now there's a personal application to our current situation. First of all, let me say, I am no Apostle Paul. However, it's been my privilege and attempt to disciple-make wherever God has sent me to do that. It's been my responsibility to prepare those under my care for a time when I would no longer be there. 
I went to Brooklyn, New York, very convinced that I was going to be a missionary with a 100-yard dash mentality, and I could do anything for a few years. And God got a hold of me and said, what if I want you here for the rest of your life? Uh, that was really something, because I had married this woman who was convinced she was going to be a missionary too, so I knew I had an out when God got a hold of that one. And I was like, well, you, you may not let, be letting me not be a missionary, but you're not going to stop her from being a missionary. So I went home and I said to her, are you willing to raise your kids in Brooklyn for the rest of, you know? And she looked at me and she said, well, I told them I'd do that when I came here. Oh, man. Ha, you. So it was all over but the scream. And then, all right, Lord, I'll stay. But I'm going to make sure other people go. So I became very intentional in trying to raise up disciples who would get to the mission field since I couldn't go. Then God eventually said, all right, I just wanted to know if you were willing to do whatever. Now you go. And I did go. But I can tell you that there are people that are in leadership in churches in this area and beyond and in ministry because of the opportunity I had, not just me, but with others there as well, making disciples in that place and they're still serving God in important roles and some of them weren't even believers when it happened in Bologna, Italy we were called to do the same thing because we were ended up being moved to another city which we didn't know we were going to be and yet there are still disciples in that city because we had a chance to work with those people in Ravenna, I've talked to you about that church that we were able to turn over to Italian leadership, that's the intention you're supposed to go, you know as a missionary, you don't you plant a church and then you move on, so you prepare the leadership, and they have Italian leadership that continues to guide them to this day. In my previous church, there were a few men that were there, and I poured into them. One of them wasn't in the ministry at all, and he's still in the ministry today, as, as are a couple of others, because God gave me a chance to pour into their lives. And now here at Bethlehem, because God has something in mind for reaching the next generation through that very generation. For me personally, these past several months have been a significant time of soul searching. I imagine you assume, as I have considered the realities that are facing this church, I believe that Bethlehem currently finds itself at a crossroads. The culture and the community around us are changing at more, um, a greater uh, rate and a pace than any of us expected. And the reality is that we are somewhat behind the curve in adjusting and adapting to those changes. And we've seen the results of that in our struggle to do that, most obviously in attendance and in our giving. Now, we watch these things very carefully, and they're simply symptoms, but they're important indicators. And it's time to address that sooner or later so that we have the resources that are necessary to make the changes that are needed. We're living in the midst of a rapidly changing society that de demands a resolve to reach the next generation of families that now call our community home. This church has always been a church that, or for many years now, call it at least the last 50 or so, that have been ministering to families with children. You move into this community because you want your kids to go to the schools that are excellent, that are here, and by the time your kids are done with those schools, you leave because who wants to keep paying the taxes? Can you say amen? Amen. That's the way it is, and it's the way this church has been, but that being said, and it isn't news to us, we have been uh, making a concerted effort to reach this demographic for the past 
four years at least, nevertheless, we're seeing a decline among this specific group. I said I believe we're at a crossroads. I also believe that what we need to do requires a new kind of leadership that represents skills that, very honestly, I do not have. Where we find ourselves is truly at a place of opportunity to rethink our approach to ministry and to help us act in different ways as we seek to engage a culture that has a very different mindset of ours, but with that same gospel message. I believe wholeheartedly in this direction that we need to do some different things to engage a culture that has a very different mindset, the same gospel. I believe just as sincerely that a key element in succeeding in that is a younger leader that represents and better engages that group, which represents the largest part of our community. For those of us who are a little older, that's harder for us to accept. But it's true. And a person who has the abilities that I do not possess. In other words, Titus, not Paul. Now this is a direction not simply some kind of solution. This is a direction. This is a following of God's leading in my life. God brought me here for a time and I don't regret a minute of it. Trust me. It's what's so made, it's made it so hard. You people are too easy to love. Good grief. If I hated you more, this would have been easier. I don't regret, it, regret a minute of it because God's made us a body of Christ. Now, you should have received a letter this week, and if you didn't, there's one out there on the table that com communicates that I'm so convinced of this that I submitted my resignation to the Board of Elders as the senior pastor of Bethlehem Church. It wasn't received with joy or gratefulness. I didn't hear a cheer. Um, and I imagine with a certain level of surprise. But also once very carefully considered, which they did, they unanimously accepted it because they agree. Was not their idea. This is God's leading in my life and for the benefit of this church, and I am convinced of that. It took a lot to come to that, and it wasn't easy, and I don't know what some of you are going through. Some of you may be cheering in your heart. That's great. For those of you who are saddened, I get it. I've been there, I still feel it, but I'm convinced that it's right. Now, I'm just going to say one other thing, too, here, that I know you wouldn't think, okay, but just in case it crossed your mind, there is no back story to this. There's no moral failure, there's no question of integrity or character, there's no thing going on in the background among leadership or staff or anything that's really ugly and we're trying to cover it up. There is nothing like that. If you believe me at all, why wouldn't you believe me now? Trust me, that's the case. It's nothing other than a genuine expression of exactly what I'm telling you. Now, I didn't come to this decision lightly, and I've sought insight from trusted counselors before coming to this conclusion. For me, the hardest part was this strong sense of personal responsibility that I have not wanting to stop or let go any sooner than when I believed that I had done all that God asked me to do. But I believe I have fulfilled what he wanted me to do. 
in preparing and now making room for new leadership. Now, while there's sadness, we don't lose hope because I am firmly convinced that God has prepared us for this very moment. I've been saying ever since I got here, and you can ask some of our worship people in particular, they've heard me say this over and over again, God always provides his church with what it needs to accomplish what he's asked it to do. As a church planner, I had to learn that. You always, as a church planner, want more of this or more of that. You have to accept the fact that God gives you exactly what you need in that moment for what he's asked you to do. In time, he may give you more, but for that moment. So as we look at ourselves in this situation, we have to look around and say, what have we got? Well, if you look at the staff that we have, their gift mix, their working relationship, and their relationships among this congregation, it's clear that God has blessed us immensely with what we need to move forward. We have remarkable resources in our staff and in you as volunteers. So as a result, I have also recommended to the Elder Board, which they unanimously approved, an initial plan that will make the most of these resources that we have. Scott Millard will take on the new role of lead pastor during a transitional period beginning September 1st. So that's right around the corner here. Per the Constitution, that won't last any longer than a year. In this role, Scott will take over the responsibilities of preaching and leading the staff. And during this time, Scott will also work with the elder board and staff to restructure our ministry model and staff responsibilities in order to position ourselves just where God wants us to be to successfully engage our community with God's message. And during this transition period, the elder board, also according to the Constitution, will establish a pulpit committee that will identify a candidate to become the next senior pastor at Bethlehem Church. Now, I'd like to reiterate something very important and specific that I think all of you know, but I want to say it anyway. God has blessed Scott Millard, soon to be Reverend Scott Millard, with remarkable gifting. His role in what the church has become during his tenure is not to be underestimated. And he's been an invaluable partner to me and a great friend, and why I have such confidence and have had the opportunity to simply mentor and give him the privilege to develop his gifts and his abilities, his theological studies, his licensing, and now his ordination with the Evangelical Free Church of America. And all of this bodes very, very well for all that's yet to come at Bethlehem Church. In Scott and in the rest of the staff, not to uh, underestimate them as well. You have a team of people necessary to immediately pursue with great intention, the direction this church needs to pursue in reaching our community. As a matter of fact, since this decision was made, it's been remarkable to me to see the resolve and the garnering and the, 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 the sense of togetherness that the staff came around Scott in and in this plan, and you're seeing some of it in, in, in what was shared with you today, to set us up for doing exactly what we believe we need to do. Instead of facing an uncertain period of seeking direction, this maximizes what God has given this church at this time to accomplish his purposes right now. Now, certainly there are questions uh, to be answered the more, more long-term, but you know, I'm confident that the Lord will clearly lead in as well as you guys move forward under the strong leadership of both the staff and the elder board. You, you have a godly elder board who seeks God's will first. You can know that because they do. And we've been praying all summer long in concerted effort to seek God's will. 
not knowing that this would be the result, but sincerely praying and leading, and he, he's answered. I think the greatest variable we have in the future is how each one of us are going to respond. You can resolve to join in all earnestness the work that will be necessary to move forward into this new future. You know, we get up here every week and we list these announcements. And Do you get those? Do you see the opportunities here? Well, I'm not a disciple maker. I, I don't know. You know, you can come to one of these meetings and find out how you could plug in under somebody who knows what to do and you learn from them. Or some of you need to go, you know what, I, I need to engage again because I do have something to offer and there's some people that could, maybe, maybe I could help and encourage somebody along myself. There's great opportunities for you to come and test that at all levels of ministry in this church from children to youth to adults. It will call for self-denial and a willingness to serve together as a body and a renewed commitment to pursue God's leading and reaching this community for Christ. And I pray that each one of you will seek God's will first and watch him work. Seek his kingdom. And then all these things are going to be added. Now again, a personal word. Don and I know that we are loved and appreciated. We know that. And you can tell me again, because that'd be great. But uh, we, we know it. This is not because we don't feel loved. In fact, as I've said, that's what's made this so difficult. But this change of ministry will not change that fact, ever. And we'll have all of eternity to enjoy each other's presence. In fact, I think it's remarkable that we would arrive at this conclusion within such a context of tremendous mutual love and respect. To me, this is one of the uh, indications of the Lord's hand in it all. And we can make a choice for the advancement of God's kingdom without compromising our relationship as brothers and sisters in Christ. To God be the glory for that. And thank you for being such a supportive congregation. Now, I imagine one of your questions is, so where are you going next? I don't know. But I know God does. The hard part was coming to know that this was the end of this, and, and if this is the end of our time here, then I know he knows what's next. Now, that doesn't mean I'm being a fool about it or anything. About 10 year, days ago, 10 days ago, I you know, entered into the process of looking around, and there's a few things out there, and just enough encouragement you know, for us to know God's got, uh, got it under control, and, and he's going to lead us where he wants us to go. So that's my application to the principle that I gave here this morning. Titus, not Paul. What's yours? You don't think I'm going to go through all this and not have you have to apply this message, do you? Where are you personally? What kind of relationships do you have? Who's your Paul? Who's pouring into you? Who's your Titus? Who are you teaching? Who are you leading by example? What are you doing that is so compelling that someone else would like to do that too? You know, this week I got a letter, just Friday. I got a letter, actually I think it was Saturday morning, from a woman in, that was in this church in the late 70s. I haven't got the letter. I'm going to have to see who might know who this was. But 
It's a sad story of really bad choices that she made and then tragic things that happened in her life. She found herself in a workplace with somebody who she just kind of befriended at first, and then all of a sudden this woman's life changed. And she wanted to know why her life changed. She said, well, you got a new boyfriend? And she said, no, I, well, not really, but I, I, I found Jesus. And, and she, she was like, okay, I had to get away from that lady as fast as I could. And then she goes to unfold how her life continued to degenerate until she got to the point where she said, maybe I need what that lady found. And she said, can I talk to you about that? And she said, sure, come to a Bible study. And she got saved through that Bible study in this church. And God continued to do more things in her life. And she's walking with Jesus now. And she's following him faithfully. She was a disciple made by another disciple. And she was reading her Bible on Saturday morning, was reminded of thankfulness and how we're not thankful enough. The Lord took her back to the late 70s, so she wanted to write a letter to this church to say, thank you for that person who poured into my life. Wow. Would it be that all of us would have our names in some kind of email like that someday because we faithfully demonstrated something that was so compelling that somebody had to come and say, what's going on with you? And oh yeah, I know it's that Jesus thing, but I've got to have it now. What's going on? Are you helping another actually do what you are living out? Teach what is true. Live what you learn and lead others to do the same because God's word and his reputation are at stake. So as a part of the service today, we'd like to have a season of prayer before we close. So I'm going to ask my wife to join me, and I'm going to ask two of our elders, uh, Stephen Williams and uh, Eric uh, Mindrebo, to come and to, uh, to enter into this time of prayer as we look to the Lord for all that he is doing and is going to continue to do. Lord, I thank you for your grace. Thank you for your, your guiding hand. Truly, you are our Lord and our God, who, as Isaiah reminds us, teaches us what is best for us and directs us in the way we should go. Help each one of us, Lord, to pursue being your faithful disciples that would faithfully make other disciples by teaching what is true, by living what we learn by leading others to do the same. In Jesus' name.